We turn this morning to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits, mit or fit, for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say unto you that God is able to, of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am unworthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost, and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will truly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Father, this morning it is clear even upon reading that John the Baptist preached exactly as we've sung. That John the Baptizer preached with emphasis upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Hence our music today has been uniquely focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And while our scripture reading started out with emphasis upon prayer and the development of the Christian Our scripture reading appropriately ended with emphasis upon the hope of the Christian that is found in Christ. And now as we turn our attention to the text, we are reminded on this Communion Sunday that there is no one else but Christ, that we would preach Christ and Him crucified, that we desire to uplift the truth of Christ, and pray that you would help us in our understanding of the text before us. We thank and praise you for the continuity of thy Spirit's work with the Word in bringing emphasis concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Help us then as we pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. John the Baptizer was an unusual man. A lot of God's people are unusual. I will not press that point any farther. But John the Baptizer was an unusual guy. He was unusual as to his dress, as reported in verse 4. He dressed along the lines of the Old Testament prophets. Particularly, he dressed along the line of Old Testament Elijah, a connection that the Lord Jesus Christ himself will make as we continue to preach our way through Matthew's gospel account. John, the son of a Jewish priest, nonetheless dressed not after the priestly garb of the day, but rather dressed after the fashion of the Old Testament prophet and that Elijah. John's unusual diet is likewise brought to bear in verse 4, as reported, and uh, reflects the wilderness where indeed he preached. Uh, He did not go into town and go to the grocery store to buy his grub to go back out camping. He just simply survived off the things that were available to him in the wilderness, namely locusts, an appropriate insect to eat, as prescribed in the book of Leviticus under the law, and of course, not only locusts, but wild honey. Yet, from the Jewish perspective of the first century, John's declaration of kingdom rule under Messiah was very unusual. You would expect trumpets. You would expect carpets. You would expect entourage. But the idea of a coming kingdom, while well known among the Jewish people, even though it had been 400 years since any prophet in Israel had specifically talked about it, nonetheless, the idea that John brought forward of the necessity of personal repentance from sin is necessary in preparation to enter the kingdom was in that generation, sadly, surprising to many. Most Jewish people of the day simply thought that they would be automatically a part of God's promises because they were the direct descendants of Abraham. And of course, John told the Jewish leaders of God's no to that thought, verse 9. John told the leader, uh, Jewish leaders uh, that they should not have the thought that they were going to be okay just because they were the physical descendants of Abraham. In that, Matthew is again stressing, like no other gospel account writer, uh, stressing that which will help us to grasp why we still pray thy kingdom John came preaching a message, the kingdom is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And yet we still pray, thy kingdom come. And, uh, and that idea uh, that is forwarded even in this seed uh, thought planting uh, of John's preaching ministry in the first century uh, helps to introduce some of those thoughts that will help us to understand uh, the kingdom delay as we even know it in our own generation. Last week, we began to pay particular attention to the preaching content of John the Baptizer concerning Israel's king and kingdom as promised. We said from verse 2 that John preached repentance. Hear ye, hear ye, repent. John furthermore preached preparation, verse 3. 
exactly as the Old Testament prophet Isaiah had forecast. John called upon the Jewish people to make ready in that moment of time for the coming of the Lord, the King. Hear ye, hear ye, repent. Hear ye, hear ye, prepare. John called upon the people, willing of heart, to publicly confess their sins in the waters of baptism. Therefore, the testimony of John's baptism was a testimony of an individual saying, I am unholy. And there's nothing I can do about that. Guilty! Proverbs 29 asks, Can a man say, I have made my heart clean? No. A man cannot say, I have made my heart clean clean. I have purified myself. So this uh, baptism unto repentance in which people are, are confessing their unworthiness is forward looking. John not only baptized with a baptism of confessing of sins, uh, of the declaration of individuals that they are unworthy, but John made it clear that his baptism was not going to deal with the sins that were confessed. And that's why when you preach this section of the Word of God, you have to be careful to draw some, some particular lines of distinction uh, lest you become confused. John's baptism is not believer's baptism. John's baptism was simply the public acknowledgement, I am unworthy the least of his favor. It's simply a confession of preparation for the king. John did not say, come let me dunk you in the water, and when I dunk you in the water, I'm telling you, we've infused the water with tide, and it will get your clothes clean, it will get your body clean, it will get your tootsies clean, you'll be clean, clean, clean once you've been baptized by me. John never said that. John's ministry was a ministry of preparation for the only one who can make clean. Messiah, Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's why John preaches that uh, the cleansing of Messiah is what you're really after. John preached, verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Hear ye, hear ye, John said repent. Hear ye, hear ye, prepare. Hear ye, hear ye, Messiah cleanses. John doesn't cleanse. You cannot cleanse yourself. Messiah cleanses. The promised king of the Jews came to cleanse a people for himself. 
Messiah came to announce that only clean-hearted people can dwell in God's kingdom. And that's where we pick it up this morning, reminding you that in the waters of John's baptism, sin was confessed. But in the fire of Christ's baptism, sin is destroyed. The contrast should not be missed. In the waters of John's baptism, sin was confessed. In the fire of Christ's baptism, sin is destroyed. This truth allows us to add, then, the two additional preaching points related to that idea of cleansing that flows through the entirety of the text. You can see all three words of emphasis concerning a Christ in verse 12. I call your attention to the word purge, which means to clean, the word gather, and the word burn. In verse 12, the ministry of Messiah is characterized as cleaning, as gathering, as burning. We began to talk about cleaning last week. This morning I want to talk to you about gathering, and I want to talk to you about burning. We add to the idea of messianic cleaning the associated matters of messianic gathering and messianic burning. The fourth thing, of John's declaration. Hear ye, hear ye, repent. Prepare, Messiah cleans. Number four, Messiah gathers. Hear ye, hear ye, Messiah gathers. Now, most of the preachers that I know would be glad to have a crowd. But John really goes after the whole segment of the crowd who gathers to hear him in a way that, again, we would say is rather unusual. It reminds us that there is a difference between a gathering and a gathering. Some people came to John's preaching hour motivated correctly. But clearly some came to John's preaching hour merely out of curiosity. They were interested but a little and not personally. And then some came uh, to John's preaching hour out of a sense of Secret hostility. And uh, it's interesting because whenever people gather, and especially if there's going to be a a focus upon the things of God, uh, uh, very seldom, if ever, is there a singularity of motivation. Uh, Why people gather together under the banner of uh, the authority of God's word is always somewhat uh, 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 amazing. Uh, some certainly gather uh, correctly out of a heart to honor God and to move forward in their faith. Uh, some indeed gather simply because of their curiosity, and others gather simply because of the fact that, that they really are hostile uh, and, uh, and bear a secret hostility to the things of God, and yet somehow are strangely drawn to it. Interestingly, John demands of that last group proof of interest and sincerity from the religious leaders who came to hear him. Uh, They were not allowed to give a casual assent to his sermons. They must bear, verse 8, the fruits of repentance. They must prove their sincerity 
by nature of life change. Uh, they weren't just allowed to say good sermon. I, I was trying to think about the aspect of the attitude that people have sometimes when they're going to gather together with the people of God under the authority of the word of God. And it's interesting because in our day, so much of it is so very casual. Well, let's go to church. We'll hear the preacher. We'll do our, our singing. We'll do our scripture reading. We'll hear our sermon. And then where do you want to go to eat? What should we do then? We got the rest of the day. It's a beautiful day. What should we do in the neighborhood? Those are the kind of things people think about. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. I wonder if anybody came to hear John and, and uh, their thought was, well, let's go out in the wilderness. We'll hear John preach and then hopefully we'll get back to Jerusalem before the, before the restaurant closes. No, it was a different day, and John demanded, especially of those religious leaders who came to hear him, no casual assent to his sermons. He called them a brood of vipers, verse 8. He said to them, who told you about the wrath that's coming upon us? Who warns you of the hurricane's path? John warned people. In strange ways. He took away their common excuse, verse 9, in relationship to Abraham. He took away their, their confidence in their own religious administration. In verse 10, he says, And now also the axe is laid onto the root of the trees. Or, big changes coming for you guys. Those of you that are in power, those of you that think you're in authority, those of you that think you're in power, big change is coming for you. He says that God is able to fulfill his plan with or without them. And that God is ready in that moment of time uh, to judge. He says, he says such outlandish things. John the baptizer said that if God wanted a congregation of, with a soft heart towards him to honor him, he could get that out of stones. He wouldn't have to work with us. He could get it out of rocks. And then, of course, he went on to talk about the uniqueness of Messiah's ministry, and particularly under an Old Testament depiction of winnowing. Winnowing. You have it in verse 12, whose fan is in his hand, speaking of Messiah, his fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly, I stumble over that word every time I see it in the King's English, thoroughly is what we would say in the modern English text, thoroughly is how it's printed in the King's English, and I stumble over that every time. I, I have looked up, I've looked up uh, through and through, thorough. Uh, uh, so many different times to get the spelling correct because it just confuses me. It's one of those confusables for me. But nonetheless, here, thoroughly purge. It means thoroughly purge, completely clean his floor. The Lord has clean floors. No Swiffer involved, but the Lord has clean floors. And gather his wheat into the garner or the granary, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
Now, the thing that I want to call your attention to in regards to the winnowing element of illustration in verse 12 is the phrase that he will gather his wheat into the garner. Purge his floor. We talked about that last week, maybe not under that particular hood of entitlement, but nonetheless, we talked about the cleaning of Messiah last week. Here it's called the cleaning of the floor, the threshing floor cleaned. But then the second element that is emphasized concerning Messiah's work, Messiah's ministry, has to do with the gathering of his wheat into the garner or granary. You understand that the winnowing process involved a ring of some sort that was made on the ground, much like a circus ring, but not so big, much more like the ring that is used by shot putters who throw the shot. Winnowing is the removal of chaff by the current of air. The person that is winnowing uh, uses a, uh, a fan-like fork. It's really not a, a, a fan, and it's really not a rake, but it's a fan rake. It's a rake fan. It's a, it's a combination of, uh, of implements that you could do some raking with it, but it's, it's really made to just get underneath the grain and pitch it up in the air uh, so that the, when the wind blows, uh, the chaff is blown away and the grain falls down within the circle. The person winnowing uses a fan like fork to lift chopped stalks of grain into the air, taking advantage of a stiff wind. The man of harvest then cleans off the grain from the threshing floor. The idea of cleaning the floor has the idea of, uh, of picking up all the grain that has fallen within the circle of the harvester's harvest. John depicts Messiah's ministry as, as using this illustration of winnowing. The result being twofold, one, the, the chaff is blown away, and the second thing, the grain is gathered. The grain gathered is personalized, in verse 12, as his grain. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, came to gather unto himself his wheat. His people. While the reference here is clearly Jewish, we can say with confidence this morning, the gathering of the Lord continues. One of the reasons why you and I know ourselves to be still here on earth. 2,000 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is because the gathering of Christ continues. Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And in that we have the gathering together of a people for his namesake. Titus 2.14 says it this way, who gave himself for us, 
that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. And so John says, Messiah gathers. Messiah gathers. And when John preached about messianic gathering, he was preaching that to the Jewish nation. And while there were some that were gathered of the Lord in the first century, to be sure, the overriding reality of the first century was he came unto his own and his own received him not. So the question might be asked, why, why was the gathering of the Lord Jesus not completed in the first century? If Messiah comes to gather, why was Israel not gathered at that time? And it's interesting because, of course, you can just refer back to the reality of all things God and say, well, that's the way God wanted it. True. That's true. That is the way God wanted it. But why was the gathering not in any way national? Why was the gathering not in any way complete? And, uh, and uh, it's interesting because the Bible, again and again and again and again and again in the Scripture, tells us exactly why things don't happen the way we might think they would happen concerning the things of God. And this past week, I wasn't necessarily looking for it, but this past week in just my normal devotional reading and engagement, I was reminded of the testimony of Lydia. And when I read that, I thought to myself, well, there you have it. There's a beautiful example of why things do or don't happen in a given moment of time when it comes to the program of God. Let me just show you that from my devotions this past week. Acts chapter 16 is where you find the testimony of Lydia. And in verse 14, you have a definitive word of description concerning Lydia's coming to Christ. Acts 16, 14. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Two questions. Number one, what did the Lord do concerning Lydia? Answer, opened her heart. Question, what did Lydia do? She attended unto the things which were spoken. In those two phrases, you have the beauty of the mystery of which we sang earlier in this hour. And that is, how does God work? Well, God works by bringing tremendous opportunity while expecting among men heart response. Worship is revelation and response. Salvation is revelation and response. 
How did you get saved? The Lord opened your eyes. You attended to the word of God. That's how you got saved. Has anybody ever been saved in any other way than that? No, 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 no. And so when the Lord Jesus comes along in the first century among the Jewish people and preaching as John did at first, the message of the kingdom at hand, the opportunity existing, yet the people not responding in faith or attending to the word of the Savior is what causes us to be reminded that he came unto his own and his own received him not. And of course the Lord was marvelously purposeful in all that, in that the Lord had you in mind, in that the Lord had me in mind, and now we too have been gathered unto the Lord, for which we are thankful. But this idea of the Lord gathering his wheat, the Lord himself is the gatherer. He is calling out a people for his namesake. He is bringing unto himself a peculiar people, purified as unto himself, zealous, as Paul said it to Titus, of good works. Hear ye, hear ye, Messiah gathers his wheat. And then we pause this morning to add the fifth preaching emphasis of John the Baptizer. Messiah is said to burn the chaff. Hear ye, hear ye, Messiah burns up the chaff. Again, verse 12, purge his floor, Messiah cleanses. Gather his wheat, Messiah gathers. Burn up the chaff, Messiah burns. And in this cleansing, gathering, burning of Messiah. You have the totality of human history in review. That's what we'll deal with next week. But right now we're talking about he will, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Fire that cannot be smothered. Fire that cannot be extinguished. Fire that cannot be put out. You know that the entryway into the Jewish Psalter, Psalm 1, clearly teaches that unbelieving and ungodly people are like chaff driven away by the wind. Psalm 1 says that those people will not be able to stand up to the fire of God's holy judgment. Psalm 1.6 says, For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The world of sinful and wicked men in Noah's day were destroyed by a worldwide flood. After the promise of God never to do that again in that way, Scripture begins to lay down the warning of God's coming judgment by fire. The final form of God's holy judgment upon sin is by fire. Moses instructed the children of Israel delivered out of Egypt about to enter the land of promise, saying, For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. At the dedication of both the tabernacle and later the temple that was built by Solomon, 
when bloody sacrifice was offered to God as prescribed, fire from heaven fell upon it, signifying that God deferred judgment of people by the fire of God's holy judgment consuming the animal sacrifice. Yet, as Leviticus 10 tells us, when Aaron's two sons offered strange fire before the Lord, the judgment fire of heaven fell upon them. Nadab and Abihu met up with the fire of God's displeasure in holy judgment. Likewise, in the day of Elijah, there was a contest between the one true God of heaven and earth and the pagan worshipers after Baal. And in that contest on Mount Carmel, the water-soaked sacrifice prepared by Elijah was licked up by the falling fire out of heaven. And by that fire out of heaven, God proved to be God, the judge of all the earth. And his judgment was by fire. References like those and many others throughout the scripture inform our understanding of John's preaching point the Messiah will baptize with fire and will burn up the chaff. In the Old Testament thread line, heavenly fire falls upon the sinner or the sacrifice. Judgment fire falls upon the bloody sacrifice under the law or it falls upon the unbelieving sinner. You should come out of the Old Testament scriptures with an understanding that the fire of God's judgment is going to fall. And it's either going to fall upon the bloody sacrifice or it is going to fall upon the individual sinner. And that is exactly the posture where all men on planet Earth this second day of October 2022 remains. Right there! under the fire of God's judgment. And the preaching point of the gospel is, either you accept the fire that fell upon the bloody sacrifice, or you must accept the judgment of God upon the sinner. What a thread line to be considered. And causes us to think about the blood's effect, not upon people, but upon God. That when there was in the Old Testament the blood of sacrifice, God deferred his judgment upon the people and licked up in judgment the sacrifice. And when Jesus Christ died for our sins, his blood speaks to God on our behalf. Speaking of better things, speaking of glorious things, speaking of saving things.
the New Testament truth of Christ in mind, we can say that the Lord Jesus was baptized with the fire of God's holy judgment at the cross at the, as the ultimate sacrifice. And we can also say that the Lord Jesus will baptize with the fire of God's judgment all people and things. For as John 5.22 says it, For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Hear ye, hear ye, Messiah baptizes with fire and burns up the chaff. More to say in those things next week. For this morning, let me remind you that in the waters of John's baptism, Jewish sins were confessed. And in the fire of Christ's baptism, sin is destroyed and that by fire. In the waters of John's baptism, Jews confess themselves unholy and desirous of God's intervention according to promise. But in the summary of John's preaching, he said the Messiah cleanses and Messiah gathers and Messiah burns as no one before or after him. John said to the Jewish Pharisees and Sadducees regarding the fruit of God's pleasure, that they must indeed, verse 8, bring forth therefore fruit, meat, fit for repentance. God's demand for fruits of repentance. Those that truly sorrow and mourn over their own sins and turn to God in full dependence, that think not of themselves in any way as worthy of God, but understand the moment of time as opportunity before God who will finally and forever judge the hearts of men. And thus you have again in that section of rendering the interesting illustration concerning those religious leaders, verse 10, in which they are told that the axe is now laid to the root of the trees. Those trees were first told to bear fruit bear the fruit of repentance. The trees that were expected to bear fruit bore no fruit. And so in the development of the analogy, verse 10, the axe now is laid to the roots of those trees. An interesting thing that comes out of the Old Testament law. I remember the first time when I was cognitively working my way through the Old Testament, verse by verse, in reading and study for the very first time as a young boy, and I came to what is called the law of highest purpose. And the law of highest purpose relates to fruit trees. If you needed a, uh, a, a piece of wood to burn, you were not allowed under the law of God uh, to cut a, a fruit tree down. If you needed uh, a piece of wood to build a box, you were not allowed to cut a fruit tree down that the principle under the law was that a fruit tree was given by God for the purpose of bearing fruit. And so the law of highest purpose is, is that because a fruit tree bears fruit, the fruit tree ought to be kept for fruit. And you ought not cut down that tree for firewood. And you ought not cut down that tree for lumber or for uh, materials for building because the law of highest purpose. And yet... The law of higher purpose gave way that when a fruit tree did not bear fruit, you could get your axe out 
and you could then use the axe to take down the fruit tree for burning, for firewood, or for building, because the tree was not yielding according to its divine purpose any longer. And so Jesus uh, comes, and he's going to purge, and he is going to gather, and he is going to burn, and as that message is being preached by John the baptizer in his generation, he, he makes it clear that uh, the administrative religious system at hand is about ready to be chopped down and burned. It's about ready to be gone. Because God, through his man John, warns the Jewish leaders of the fruitlessness of their religious system and places the demand for heart fruit after God's own pleasure. I would simply remind you that we too, in Christ, are called to bear fruit. And it is God's good pleasure that we would bear much fruit as the people of the Lord. And then I would simply remind you this morning that just as it is impossible for you to clean your own soul, just as it is impossible for you to gather yourself unto God, and just as it is impossible for you to bear fruit unto righteousness, all those things are made possible, are made real, through one, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, there has been a definite Christological emphasis throughout this morning hour by way of reading and singing and now preaching. Continue to prepare our hearts for the flow of this day in fellowship and communion with thee and each other. We pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.